you know, sophistication of the property. We have some that we do monthly because they're, you know, we've spent their capital and we're just cash flowing now and not a lot going on. There's no point in having a biweekly call, but you can have a weekly call and be severely unproductive and not be on top of things. So this is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in. Happy to be talking with you today. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. For those of you who don't know, I am a multifamily real estate investor, a syndicator. I invest in self-storage properties. And just like you, I am a busy professional who loves what I do. Today, our guest is Chris Grenzig from Toro Real Estate Partners. Chris is a multifamily real estate investor and an asset manager for a successful multifamily real estate investment company. Chris is going to tell us about his experience as an asset manager, what led him to get into the business, tough lessons that he's learned along the way that we can apply in our multifamily investment companies and strategies. There's a lot of great information in this one for multifamily real estate investors and for everyone thinking about getting into multifamily real estate investing. Once again, our guest is Chris Grenzig from Toro Real Estate Partners. You're going to really enjoy this one. I had a great time talking with them. A lot of great information in this one. And without further ado, here we go with Chris Grenzig from Toro Real Estate Partners. Chris Grenzig, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your company and your background, kind of the number of deals you've done, all that good stuff? Sure. So my title uh, is Asset Manager for Toro Real Estate Partners. Uh, our company was formed by John Cohen and Don Dorenzo in 2015. Um, and I work right underneath them. But you know, I have my hand in a lot of other things from acquisitions, equity raising, debt placement, insurance, you name it, I've been involved. Um, but my day-to-day -day roles are definitely more on the asset management side. Um, since we formed, we've acquired a little over 3,500 units. We have about 2,000 currently still under management. Um, so we bought 20, sold nine properties. Um, you know, we look for value add and opportunistic B and C class assets in, you know, secondary and tertiary markets in the Southeast and Midwest. Okay. So how would you define opportunistic and value add? Do you go after something that'd be considered a heavy lift and, and how does that play into the numbers when you're doing like a rehab? Yeah, I think like a lot of things, it's subjective. You know, it's definitely a sliding scale. Um, for me, when I tell people the difference between the two, value add for me, you're putting in between, you know, three to 8,000 a door. Um, that's kind of your light to medium value add for us. Or it's a stable property. I would call opportunistic deals, deals that have major problems or are not stable. Stable is typically 90% occupied for at least 90 days. Um, or you know, some sort of overhaul of the property, I think is also opportunistic. The reason being opportunistic implies uh, more risk, therefore there should be more reward. So if you're going in and you're putting 20, $25,000 a door, and even if it's 90% occupied, I would say that's, you know, not all the way towards one end of opportunistic, but it's definitely not your traditional value add play. So it's definitely a little bit subjective, you know, when you hear someone say it, clarifying question is always important like you just did. Um, but for me, that's kind of the difference between the two. Okay. Okay. And you go after secondary and tertiary markets. Why aren't you targeting, you know, primary markets and how do you guys think about selecting markets when you're, you know, looking for deals? 
Sure. So I think, um, you know, we look for good cash flow and good forced appreciation potential. Um, I think it's tougher to get cash flow in primary markets. I think your cap rates are very compressed to the point where you're seeing little to none because um, you're going in cap rates are similar to your debt yields, um, which doesn't produce cash flow. So unless you're buying something that is opportunistic and you're going to refinance in a couple of years, um, you're probably not going to see cash flow for the life of that deal, which is fine. There's plenty of people that love that. You're more likely to have higher capital preservation likelihood, um, but it wasn't something we were looking for with our own personal money. So we strayed more towards secondary and tertiary markets that have good economic and demographic trends and indicators um, that have slightly better cap rates going in so that we can get good to very good cash flow for the life of the hold, as well as there's potential to add value to the properties and have some appreciation upon uh, sale or refinance, but we typically sell. Um, okay. As far as choosing a market, like I said, you know, we tend to look for uh, economic and demographic things that we like to see. So that could be uh, population. Is it growing stagnant or going down? Um, what percentage is it doing that by? Uh, how big is the population? We're not really looking for markets anymore that are less than a million people uh, from an MSA standpoint. So not necessarily the city limits because um, we feel that there's good resources. Uh, there's multiple types of resources within categories, whether it's management or contractors or lenders, whatever it may be, there's multiple options as well as usually there's more likelihood of job diversity with more people. Um, job diversity leads usually to lower probability of being hit hard in a recession because you're relying on more different industries. Um, we look for economic trends. So what is your unemployment? What is your job growth? What is your jobs added? Um, things like that, that we tend to look for. And we want to see either, um, you know, a trend growing in the direction we want to see or at levels we're looking for. Okay. And what size of deals are you going after? Because that's a big component in this whole business. You don't want to go too small. So how do you th think about it in terms of number of units or, or deal value or NOI? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So it's a blend between units and purchase price. Um, we really want to see properties in between five and 50 million. Uh, reason being it brings in enough dollars for us that the time it takes is worth it. We put in the same amount of effort for a $1 million deal versus a $10 million deal. Um, but we also want to see enough units that it can support on-site staff. We really don't want to buy properties out of our area that doesn't have somebody there, you know, nine to five, five days a week, um, or sometimes even living at the property where you give them a discount. So it's a blend between the two. So we've offered on deals that are less than hundred units as low as 64. Um, but because we were getting such a good discount and it supported a higher per expense for usually it's payroll, but other things too, um, are somewhat fixed costs. The lower your units, those fixed costs become more expensive on a per unit basis. So it, we tend to stray more in the hundred to 300 unit space. Um, but we will go lower or higher if the right deal comes across our desk, just usually tougher to find. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's good to have those deal criteria named and figured out so you can, you can look other, you know, folks that I deal with. And, and then, you know, my company, we have other more property specific criteria related to like pitched roofs or, you know, mansard roofs, flat, we don't want flat roofs, things like that. How do you think about that in your business in terms of your criteria? You know, are you a, a no flat roofs company 
Well, you think about mansard roofs, I mean, and and more and more detailed, I mean, foundations and any some of those still high level criteria, but also very specific. How, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, we don't really have anything from a mechanical or property structure thing that rules it out for us. There's things we prefer to see and things we're willing to pay more for, um, but it all depends on price for us. Um, However, there are things that we won't do. You know, there's certain zip codes we won't buy in regardless of price because they're too rough and we don't want our people working there, nor do we want to go to these areas. Um, there's also markets we're currently not actively looking in. Um, so from a business standpoint, we've uh, identified two clusters in the country to kind of target. So North and Central Florida and five cities in the Midwest, uh, reason being, a lot of people choose multifamily because the economies of scale that the property brings, as well as we want to continue to grow those economies of scale by acquiring multiple properties in these areas, because it continues to decrease those expenses on the properties, which in turn creates higher NOI, higher cash flow, higher returns for our investors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we don't necessarily stray towards out. Oh, we don't do flat roofs, but I'm probably going to pay a little bit more for a pitch roof than a flat roof because I know it's probably going to be less repairs, less leaks, you know, less things I have to worry about. Same thing with HVACs. A lot of flat roofs, they'll have them on the roof and some will have them on the ground. We would always rather have them on the ground, cheaper to maintain, cheaper to replace, et cetera. So we know things that we prefer to see, but at the end of the day, if the dollars work, our expenses may be higher on a flat roof than a pitch roof. But if we're getting it for a 20% discount versus the pitch roof, probably going to buy that flat roof deal. So really just depends on what we're paying for that property and if the numbers work. Okay. So you're, you're, I don't want to say casting a pretty wide net, but you're, you're willing to look at these deals and just be purely driven by the numbers more or less. That makes sense. sense. To a certain extent you say that, and then it's funny, one of the criteria that we say is we'll list off. So I'll give you a typical example of what I tell people when I you know, tell them the deals we're looking at. I'll list those markets. I'll say our sweet spot is five to 50 million, hundred to 300 units. But on the units, we'll go, like I said, higher or lower, depending upon the deal. Um, we usually look for 1960s to 2000 built properties that are either opportunistic or value add, like I spoke about. Um, but I said, the one thing we're really looking for in a property is some sort of compelling factor or some sort of interesting backstory. Uh, we're not the group that's going to go out and buy the deal that was bought two, three, five years ago where somebody put X amount of dollars into exterior and amenities and they renovated 10, 20, 30% of unit interiors and you can finish that out. Those deals for us are a dime a dozen. They're all over the place and it's just not what we want to buy. Uh, so we look for deals with um, you know, poor ownership, operational inefficiencies, long-term ownership, um, multiple channels for value add, um, we'll look for the ability to manage properties together to reduce expenses. We will look for different avenues. Um, we'll look at cost basis compared to market. Uh, we'll look at larger equity checks for large loan assumptions. Um, cause a lot of groups don't like that. People want to maximize their debt. We're a little bit different from that standpoint. Um, so we tend to look for things that make the deal compelling and a story behind it rather than just say, Hey, this deal is a, a five and a half cap going in and it's 1970s built. And that's the deal we want to buy. So it, it's numbers, but it's also why should I buy this property? 
we want to look at the story that that all makes sense. And you mentioned operational inefficiencies, and you know, people talk about that at a fairly high level. Um, but I, you know, if we could dig into that a little bit, some of the operational efficiencies that you actually see out there when you're looking at deals. I mean, can you can you name a few that are that are fairly common, and then let's get into some more some of the less common ones that uh, have just been interesting. Sure. I think, you know, some easy ones you'll see is, you know, if someone's paying more for a management fee than you are, that's an easy one to reduce. Um, some people might consider that inefficient. Um, so that could be one. Uh, another easy one is repairs and maintenance or turns. If you're going to be bringing capital upfront, a lot of times you can reduce that expense somewhat. Um, I wouldn't say you could totally eliminate it or decrease it exponentially. There's always going to be repairs and maintenance. There's always going to be turnover at some point in the future. Um, but if you go in and you totally gut a unit, your turnover cost, if you did nothing compared to that, is probably going to be lower, even if it's in three, four, five years. Um, you should obviously increase it as you go forward. But uh, that's one. Um, an operational inefficiency. Uh, a lot of times payroll, um, if you think people are being overpaid or if the property is overstaffed, um, is one you might be able to do. Um, and then I think some ones you may not necessarily see. Uh, there was one property we just looked at that um, had a high water and sewer bill compared to a lot of the local properties. Um, so we looked at, you know, were low flow um, and low water um, instruments installed at the property. Uh, we also looked at what the cost was to replace all the pipes because we figured there was a good shot. There was a leak. Um, so we, we looked at that. So if we spend hundred grand replacing pipes, you know, what's our ROI on expected water sewer, uh, cost to drop. Um, other things we'll look at is, um, old lights. So if you can replace them with led, they're pretty insignificant from a capital standpoint, but they can reduce your common electric by 10 to 20%. Um, being able to, you know, a lot of times for payroll in markets, we see, if you have a, a weird size property from 70 to 120 units, give or take, a lot of times your payroll is going to be higher per unit than properties that are 200, 300 units. Um, but if you can buy two 100-ish unit properties close to each other, a lot of times what you can do is you can pay that manager uh, the normal salary and they're going to be almost the manager for both properties. And then you're going to have an assistant manager underneath them and you might be able to shave you know, five to 15% off your payroll. Same thing for the maintenance staff as well, where it's going to be slightly more expensive than, you know, a one property that's 200 units, but it's still going to be cheaper than if you only had that one 100 unit property. Um, so I think that's the economies of scale we were talking about that I went back to that makes it really interesting. Um, so I think, you know, not to go on forever, but those are a couple of ways that people do it or, you know, that we look for, uh, to find those operational inefficiencies. And, you know, along the way you've been growing in your, you know, asset management career, learning things along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to touch on some of the, the lessons that you've learned in either, you know, managing your, your property managers or managing construction, you know, some of the things that might've gone wrong or, or something like that, that you had to come in and, and step in and fix. You know, what are some of those tough lessons that you've, uh, you've learned? I think one of the biggest ones is that on, as you get larger and larger in properties, things move a little bit slower, um, especially when you're looking at 
trying to make changes in your financials, whether that's increasing income or decreasing expenses. Uh, these things take a little bit of time. So one of the things that we've done in the last three to six months is we've placed a greater emphasis on weekly reports over monthly or quarterly financials um, because you receive financials or the financials are done once the month ends. So it's been 30 days. That problem could have occurred at day one. So now you're at day 30. So you've had 30 days of this problem occurring, but oftentimes you don't get those financials for you know 10 to 20 days. So let's say it was 15 days just to split the difference. Now you're 45 days from that problem going on. Now you got to look at it. Now you have the conversation with your manager. And then now you've got to try to figure out what the problem is and how to correct it. You could be 45, 50, 60 days in the rears where if you had caught this problem, let's say it was a, uh, a marketing problem for traffic. You're not getting enough traffic in the door. So your occupancy is dropping. If you had found out that your traffic is trending lower in that first week, that could be a conversation you have in week two. And it could be, you know, figuring out a game plan in week three and implement implementation in week four. And, you know, you just cut your time difference in half. Um, so that's one of the things we've placed a greater emphasis on recently. I think some other things are um, staying on top of contractors and managers kind of feels like you're nagging them, but it's necessary. Um, you know, as long as you don't overdo it and there's always a fine line and you are going to overstep sometimes. And as long as you realize it and, you know, have the conversation and apologize, um, but you do have to stay on top of them. Um, some other things I think, you know, one of the things a lot of people don't discuss that I think is really interesting is just because a deal could be great, it may not be an area you want to invest in from a personal standpoint. A lot of people just focus on what's the dollars, what's the return? Is this a good deal? I think there's something to be said for, is this a place I want to personally invest in? Uh, you know, there's a big difference between Mobile, Alabama and Charleston, South Carolina. And I know if I have the same deal, I'm definitely going to prefer Charleston, South Carolina over that. Not even from just a market standpoint, just from a you know, ease of access standpoint, a cost of access standpoint, um, you know, my trips, how enjoyable is that trip going to be? Um, so I think there's something to be said for that. I think every person has to figure out what is the discount you're willing to take to be in those markets. Um, but I'll tell you one thing for shit. Sure. If you have a deal that's going poorly, you're going to be way happier if you have to go down to Charleston than you do for mobile. Cause we've been to both and I'll tell you which one I prefer 10 times out of 10. Um, so I think there's something to be said for that, that everyone sometimes, you know, back to the, you know, the investment criteria we're talking about, I think sometimes there's more than just the number aspect that goes into uh, evaluating properties, markets, deals, et cetera. Interesting that I, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about kind of the soft aspect of traveling to places and, and just whether or not you're going to enjoy, <laughs> enjoy your trip, but it makes sense. I mean, if, if you have a de two deals where, all else being equal, then a more enjoyable market. That's also probably an indicator that that market is going to, people are going to want to live in that market more than in the less enjoyable market. Yeah. And look, you know, it's, you know, it's the same thing. You could be handed a deal for free in mobile. You know, it could be double the deal, but it's at, there's, everybody's got a breaking point and it could be yours could be, I'm never going to go there. Cause I just never want to travel there. Um, it could also be too a weather thing. You know, do you want to buy something in Ann Arbor, Michigan or in Jacksonville, Florida? Both markets are great from my understanding. I know next to nothing about Ann Arbor except a couple snippets here and there. Um, 
but it's maybe you just hate the cold or maybe you hate the warm, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's nothing wrong with picking one over the other for that reason. Um, I think sometimes people are, Oh, it's, you know, 23 versus 24 on the fastest growing market in the country. I'm going to go with Ann Arbor over Jacksonville, even though you hate the cold, it's no, take the one you prefer to go to if they're very similar or close in your book. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, on the, on the management thing, that's something that I've experienced, but I haven't thought about. I mean, one of the properties that I'm a partner in right now, we have weekly calls with the asset manager and the property manager and, and that stuff, things like traffic that's being kept, uh, an eye is being kept on that, but I hadn't thought that some people might not be watching that that closely. So that's, it's good to know, um, to watch out for that, that people might not be watching that closely enough. A lot of people do weekly or biweekly calls. I think biweekly you can definitely, it depends on the level of, you know, sophistication of the property. We have some that we do monthly because they're, you know, we've spent their capital and we're just cash flowing now and not a lot going on. There's no point in having a biweekly call. Um, but you can have a weekly call and be severely unproductive and not be on top of things. So just because you're having a call, I think it's staying on top of things and being able to identify issues and talk through them. That is more important because we were, ha we, you know, we've had at least bi-weekly calls on all of our properties that are going through some sort of capital program. And I don't think we were doing the best job we could have done on staying on top of things week to week and really analyzing, you know, traffic week over week or month over month where it was we were relying a bit too much on our manager and our on-site to kind of tell us how it was going we didn't you know, we didn't have last week's report and look at this week's report and look at the difference and track things it was more of just looking at this week's report and you know oh how is traffic how was it versus last week and ask that question and if your on-site's not on top of things you know you're now relying on them you're not necessarily listening to them, but also going off of your own information as well. So I think that's something we changed that I think is going to go better as any of these things crop up. Yeah. And it helps a lot to, in my experience, to handle questions from investors about, you know, the current status. They send, if they send you an email and say, Hey, what's going on? Oh, great. We had a call two days ago. I know exactly what's going on and we can just, just handle that. It's very helpful. Very helpful. Anything else that, that comes to mind in terms of tough lessons that you've learned um, along the way getting it as an asset manager? One of them was just because someone's done a good job in the, in the past doesn't mean they're going to continue to do one in the future. Um, you know, we've inherited on-site staff that were doing well and got to a point where they were not doing what we wanted to anymore. And we had to part ways. Um, same thing with a contractor. Um, when we were still, you know, I did some smaller multifamily stuff early on. Um, I did an eight unit and then a 17 unit up in Covington, Kentucky. Um, contractor did phenomenally on the eight unit. And then on the 17 unit ended up basically stealing 40 grand from us. So, oh, man. you know, unfortunate, you know, we were lucky enough that we were able to come out of that deal and, you know, not lose any money and still make a little bit. Um, definitely missed on projections and, you know, failed to execute the business plan to what we thought we could. Um, but you know, basically guy ran into money problems and when your back's up against the wall, sometimes you do stuff you're not supposed to do. Um, but did phenomenal on our other project, crushed it. Um, so, you know, I think there does come a point sometimes where just because, you know, it's not always, what have you done for me in the past? It's somewhat to a degree, what have you done for me lately? Um, and you know, what you've done in the past gives you a longer leash, but you can still hang yourself with a really long leash. So 
um, I think it's important to continue to analyze how someone's doing for you, not put too much emphasis on what they've done, however long they've been with you. Um, I think some other things too, um, not necessarily from the asset management side, but a little bit from the acquisition side, um, is it's tough sometimes not to fall in love with a deal as you're looking at it. Um, and not to try to push the boundaries a little bit of your assumptions and what you think you can do with it to make a deal work just because it feels right. It's really tough not to do that. Um, and sometimes you have to be willing to bend a little bit. Um, but there's always that breaking point and you gotta be very careful not to fall in love with the deal. Cause I think when you do fall in love with it, you're willing to push and push and push. And where if you had just looked at you and be like, okay, this is, this is too much. Uh, for example, we're looking at a deal right now around the corner from another deal we own. And I just think it would pair really nicely. I think we'd get some operational efficiencies from it that would benefit the deal we own as well as this new deal. But I just, I keep coming back to, I feel like I'm forcing it. I feel like I'm forcing it. And luckily I like the deal, but I'm definitely not in love with it. Um, but I think that if this was a deal where some others in the past I had been in love with, I think I would be more inclined to push it a little bit more and a little bit further. So probably not a deal we're going to end up doing, um, at least for the price they want, um, because of that. So I think that's really important as well. So staying focused on the numbers, not falling in love with any particular uh, deal for whatever reason you might like the soft aspects of it. You got to stay focused on the numbers and, and not pay too much. Yeah. Cool. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Chris, I got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. All right. All right. First one, what is the best investment that you've ever made? The best investment I ever made is not a deal. It was when I moved over full-time with Toro, I took a 50% pay cut to do it. Wow. And that's the best investment I ever made. It was basically an investment in myself and, you know, my future career. Um, and I didn't like where I was working. Um, I put on a ton of weight. I was super unhappy. I don't think I was depressed, but I just hated it. And I was significantly happier when I moved over. And I don't think I'd be where I am today and who I am today um, if I hadn't made that decision. So for me, best investment hands down I made. Wow. That's tough. That's tough. That's a, that's a great lesson. And it's, it's good you did it while you're, while you're young. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you've ever made? The worst investment I ever made. That's tough. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know that I have one because I think even, you know, your quote unquote traditional worst investments were lessons. And I think your, your failures are never really failures if you don't learn something from them. Um, and I think I've taken something from all of them. Um, so I don't know that I really have, you know, a bad investment. I, you know, if you want to go technical, the worst one on paper, um, in real estate was that 17 unit we did. Um, you know, that was the, you know, technically the worst one on paper, but I don't view it as a bad investment because I learned a lot from it. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I tend to think about it in, in, in similar terms, you know, I haven't lost a significant amount of money, but the only times I have are on stock trading and it was a lesson that I'm not good at stock trading. So there we go. 
So my favorite question, the third one is, what is the most important and the most valuable lesson that you've learned in real estate and investing? That patience is equally as important as working hard. Because if you can work hard today and be patient, you're going to see those results come to fruition at some point in the future. I think also having a plan with actionable steps to get you to those goals is important, but not being, you know, so impatient that I've got to get to X today and having that long-term vision um, to get there is important. So, you know, being able to be patient and have that goal in mind and creating a plan to get there is super important. Yeah. I think that goes along very well with your, your best investment that you made, which was taking such a, a big pay cut and, and, being patient and saying, all right, well, I'm taking a big pay cut, but I'm going to get back to where I was and get above that. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Nice. So uh, thank you for everything today. We learned a lot about how a successful multifamily business picks markets, picks deals, and, and what you guys are focusing on and how you manage uh, the actual operation of your property. So I certainly appreciate that. If folks want to learn more about your business and ask any more questions, where can they get in touch with you? For sure. So uh, if you want to learn more about the business, uh, our website is tororep.com, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. Uh, we also did just launch our own podcast. Um, it's called The Real Estate Investing Experience. We're on all different platforms. So uh, if you want to learn more about the business, go and check that out. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me directly, you know, usually get back to people within, you know, a day or so, uh, best is email Chris at tororep.com, uh, or you can hit me up on Instagram, uh, at chris.grenzig. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us today. Everything that you mentioned is going to be in the show notes for the folks that uh, might've missed it, or you can record and of course get all those, but they'll be in the show notes. And, uh, thanks once again, once again, for joining us today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help and helps other people uh, learn about the show. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more knowledge about real estate investing in their lives to grow their wealth, please share the show with them and then bring them into our little tribe we got going on here. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.